Well, good morning, Christ Church. Welcome to worship. We are thrilled to be worshiping alongside you this morning. My name is Steve Noble. I have the privilege of serving with our middle school students here at the church, which means I get to know a lot of the incredible young people at Christ Church. I'd like to introduce you to two of my friends, Sai and Ruby. Sai and Ruby are neighbors and they're close friends, and they are going to invite you to worship with us this morning. Hey guys, I'm Sai. And I'm Ruby. And we're glad that you're being able to worship with us. Our families have been worshiping a lot together. And we're glad that you can do it too. So we're so glad that you're here this weekend with us. And we would love for you guys to stay for the whole thing and worship with the, com the community. Let's worship God. See you guys. crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now the Savior knelt to wash our feet now at his feet we bow the one who wore our sin and shame now
bow your head in a moment of prayer. God, we thank you that you make all things new. Thank you for the victory and power that we just sang about that's in your name. Thank you that you hold the keys over death. Thank you that by your might, Jesus was raised from the grave, paving the way for us to have new life with you. God, thank you that you had a plan, and thank you that you made a way where there was no way. And we praise you for your great strength. We praise you for the love that you lavish on us. Oh, God, we praise you that you're our conqueror. You're our victor. You're our redeemer and our friend, and we praise you that you are also our deliverer, the worthy one, everlasting Father, great and awesome God. God, we confess to you that we need you fresh, new, again. And we ask that you renew our hearts and minds and lives for these days that are ahead of us. We pray for a refreshing of yours to cover and and flow in us and over us. God, we pray that you would shine your light in us and through us and over us. May we make a difference in this world, God, for your glory and for your purposes. Set your way before us, God. Make all your plans succeed. May we reflect your peace and hope to a world that's in so desperate need of it and in so desperate need of your presence and your healing power. And thank you, God, for your indescribable gift. And all God's kids together, we say a resounding amen and amen. Good morning and welcome once again to Christ Church. I don't know where you may be joining us from this holiday weekend, but we're just glad that you're tuning in to worship with us this morning. If you are new and joining us for the first time, let me extend a special welcome to you. My name is Sue Ann. I serve on staff here at the church and on behalf of all of the staff, we are so glad that you're joining us this morning. If you could do me a favor and just find that new here button on your screen and click on that let us know who you are and where you're worshiping from this morning. We would we would really appreciate that. If you are new, whether it's this morning or maybe you've been hanging around for the last couple months and you have some questions about who we are and what we do here at Christ Church, I also want to invite you to a special meeting next Sunday called Meet the Pastor. It is right after this worship service at noon. It will be via Zoom and our senior pastor, Dan Meyer, will be live and he will be able to um, just share a little bit about his heart and his vision for the church as well as answer any questions you may have. So would really encourage you to join us for that next Sunday right after this service. Uh, For all of us next Sunday, it is Communion Sunday. So just make a mental note of that. Uh, It would be great to have your communion elements out before we start worship next week so that way it doesn't interrupt uh, the flow of your morning. And so if you can just make a mental note of that and do that this week, uh, that would be great. We just wanted to let you know. Um, Lastly, in two weeks, on July 19th, we will be opening our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 as part of this Life Together series. And the really cool thing about Philippians chapter 2 is that Paul 
uh, lifts up and values people in his life that are heroes, people who are heroes of the gospel and people who are heroes in his own life. And we thought, how fun would it be for us as a community to lift up the people that we see in our own lives as heroes and who are making a difference in the world around us. And so our communications team is working on a very special project, but we need your help. And so if you could do two things for me, one, just right now, right now, take a moment and think about those people in your life, your friends, your neighbors, your community leaders, the people in your church, your colleagues, who are those people who have made a difference for you or who you see making a difference in the world? And then once you have those in mind, take a minute and send an email to stories at Christchurch.us and attach a picture of this person or those people and just put one sentence one sentence about who they are and why they've made such a difference. And then we are going to celebrate that as a church who values community and values people. We're going to celebrate that together in a couple of weeks. So if you could help us out with that, we would really appreciate it. We are going to continue our worship as we do each and every week by inviting you into a time of generosity. And we do this because it just gives us a moment to be thankful for the gifts that God has given us and consider how we might participate in giving back. Very early on in our marriage, Eric and I decided that we would tithe to our local church, which simply means giving 10% of your income back to the work of God. And, and that's what we have decided to do. And we've done it very intentionally over the course of 20 some years that we have been married, but it hasn't always been easy. And as I've been thinking about freedom this weekend in new and deeper ways, I've been thinking about freedom in the area of our finances and how when things get hard in any area of our lives, our inclination is to hold more tightly to that which we think is rightfully ours. And I wonder at those times when we're holding on so tightly, if those aren't also the exact times that God is inviting us to let go. And he's inviting us to let go because he knows when we do so, we experience freedom. And so our worship team is going to sing a song called God Turn It Around. And it really is a song all about freedom. And as they sing, you're going to see a link right now actually on your screen that's going to invite you to give either through our give page on our website, or you can always pull out your phone and text the word CCOB or Butterfield to 77977. You can also mail in a donation or drop one off at one of our campuses. But this is a time of worship. Giving is a time of worship. And I, I think this time is a, is a perfect time for us to consider how we might let go of some of the things today, especially in a world that seems very hard that we are holding very tightly to, and ask God to take it and to bring freedom both in our own lives as well as to the lives of other people. So let us continue our worship this morning.
That song is speaking the truth, that God is doing something right now in the life of our country. And uh, I am just thrilled to have the opportunity to think about that reality with you today as we celebrate this weekend and think about the role that we play in the world. If you're new to Christ Church, we are thrilled to have you here in worship with us today and hope that you've already found your heart uh, stirred and uh, your needs met in a helpful way, and hope and pray that through the remainder of our time together, God will be doing good things in you as well. You know, as I think about the life of our uh, beloved nation on this 4th of July weekend, I have got this persevering hope. And the hope, I feel, is that we are going to be able to overcome the profound conflicts that divide us. I know that may seem like a stretch right now, given how much clashing is going on, but I believe that with God's help, we can overcome uh, these divisions. I have this hope that we're gonna find a way to construct a society where even more people flourish, that, that we're gonna find a way to close the gap between the noble ideals that were there at the beginning of this country's life and the often uneven realities of American life. Uh, I believe we can become a country that is admired the world over, not only for our formidable economy and our, our amazing entertainments, but for the exemplary character that we demonstrate. But I also believe that in order for that particular vision to come into being, it is gonna require that you and I and many other people out there be the church be the church of Jesus Christ in a far more active and faithful way than perhaps we have been fulfilling that calling. As some of you may know, uh, one of the first and the greatest fans of America was actually a foreign person, somebody from France, a sociologist by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville. And in the early 1800s, de Tocqueville came to the United States in order to study what made this remarkable nation work? And the fruits of his research were published in a classic two-volume work entitled Democracy in America. It was a staple of the core curriculum in my political science major at Yale, but I know it's been largely forgotten uh, in our time. I think it's worth listening again today to what de Tocqueville wrote. He said, I sought for the greatness and the genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. I sought for the genius and greatness of America in her fertile fields and her boundless prairies, and it was not there. I looked for it in her rich mines and in her vast world commerce, and it was not there. 
not until I went to the churches of America and I heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. And then de Tocqueville goes on and says this, America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The vitality of America, de Tocqueville believed, had sprung from the moral vision that got shaped every single week in the life of its myriad churches. The genius of America, he felt, lay in the way that Christians, inflamed by a vision of righteousness, which really means alignment with God's purposes or right living, by the way these Christians went out to practice that in their domestic lives, in their community engagements, in their business pursuits, and even in the way that they did their politics. De Tocqueville went on to describe in his book the vast variety of voluntary associations that the faith of church members spawned out in the world. He marveled at all of the nonprofit organizations that Christians founded to address practical problems. He, he was amazed by the works of mercy that followers of Jesus were extending to, to people in pain or in trouble. And the restless way that these church people just kept working to improve and to reform society's systems so they more closely resembled the kingdom of God that Jesus taught about. The genius of America, de Tocqueville saw, lay in this essential goodness. If America ceases to be good, he says, if she ever ceases to be good, then America will cease to be great. This is why this sermon series that we're in right now that we're calling Life Together seems like a particularly timely one from my point of view. Uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians illuminates six crucial callings that God has given to the church. In this letter, we find six concrete callings which, if you and I answer them, can help us to be the kind of light-reflecting, society-salting, goodness-enhancing force that our communities and our country desperately needs, especially right now. So what we talk about in this series, I really hope you'll talk about in your families. I hope you'll talk about it with your small group. I hope you'll converse about some of these themes with your neighbors and especially teach them to your children. It is just that important. As Lisa and Eric reminded us this past week, the first of those callings is to love the church. Now, I'm not saying that you have always got to love going to church or love everything that gets said or done by church people or even to love each and every aspect of this particular church. Uh, our calling in the scriptures is to love what the church with a capital C is intended to be and to live together toward that the way the apostle Paul did. Paul was absolutely nuts about the Christian church. In fact, one of the main reasons he felt that, that he was so fond of the early church, was because he saw believers like you and me as holy people. In fact, the very first verse of Philippians in chapter 1 talks about, uh, is addressed to these holy people. Now, when Paul talks uh, about holy there, it's not in the sense of moral purity. Paul doesn't love the church because it's full of perfect people. We know it isn't. Uh, we live daily with that reality. In fact, the church is especially for imperfect people. It's where imperfect people find the grace and the truth that they need to, to grow healthier. When Paul uses the word holy here, he means it not in the sense of moral perfection, but in the sense of being set apart. Holiness means uh, to be set apart for God's special purposes. So when I say I love the church, or when I call you to love the church, I mean let's start cherishing even more than we may right now the role that you and I have been set apart to play in this world. 
Uh, Paul says in verse three of Philippians one, I thank God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you, he says, I always pray with joy. Why? Why is he praying this way? And he goes on to tell us, because of your partnership in the work of the gospel. Uh, in other words, what fills Paul with delight when he thinks of the church? It's the special role they play as partners in extending the good news. And it is this, frankly, I'm speaking for myself now, that I especially love about you too. Uh, when I think about how many of you are serving God right where you are now, in the circumstances you're living with now, how you're trying to do God's will. When I, I remember how you're uh, giving generously to keep the local and global mission of the church going strong. When I think of how you are working to share the good news or the gospel message with your children or your, your grandchildren. When I uh, remember how you're praying for your neighbors to come to know Christ in a personal way, or you're trying to live as citizens of, of the kingdom of God above your social group standards, above political party agendas. Every time I remember you living that particular way, I think, wow, I love the church. And along with Paul, this is my particular prayer, that your love may abound more in knowledge and in depth of insight. My prayer is that you will see how important you and all of your fellow believers of every age and every race and every place are to the work of God in our time. In fact, I want to just really trumpet this idea today. Our willingness to live into our calling as the church in this day can be just as society-altering as it was in the Philippians' day or in the days of Alexis de Tocqueville. We can be that church that transforms our society just as the first century church did, just as the 19th century church did. Why is that? Why do I have that confidence? Well, because, as Chuck Colson once observed, the quality of every culture depends on the quality of the cult at its center. By the word cult, I don't mean in the Mooney sense or the Jim Jones sense. I mean uh, the set uh, and the practice of spiritual beliefs that really move the center of that culture. America will only be as great as its church. We are the cult that forms the culture which points us, I think, to the second dimension of our vocation as Christians in our time. And I'm talking here about the calling to live courageously. You know, there's a lot that you can say about the Apostle Paul, and a lot of people have said quite a bit about Paul over the years, sometimes uh, saying nice things, sometimes not so nice things, but there's one thing almost everybody agrees on in their assessment of this man's life. Paul lived courageously. In his second letter to the church at Corinth, Paul actually gives us some detail about what he'd faced as a follower of Jesus in his world. You probably face some challenges as a follower of Jesus. Think about what Paul dealt with. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, he says. I don't know how many of you remember that scene from the movie, The Passion of the Christ, where we see Jesus enduring, being flayed, enduring incredible torture. How many times did Paul go through that? Five times five times. Three times, he said, I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I have been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my fellow Jews, from Gentiles. I, I, I have been in danger in the city, in the country, at sea, and from false believers. In other words, Paul had endured years of hardship and opposition and even torture. And so when he writes this letter to the Philippian church, 
he's now facing yet another set of difficult circumstances. He's chained under house arrest in Rome. Now, I reckon that most of us understand a little bit of what that would have been like. We know what it is to be confined in our homes for months on end and how incredibly depressing that can be. But I invite you to listen to how Paul thinks about that experience, or let me put it differently, how he chooses to think about his experience. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It has become clear throughout the whole palace guard, everybody watching uh, the way I'm enduring what I'm going through, and it's become clear to everyone else that I am in chains for the sake of Christ, for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord, and they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. I hope you're getting this. Paul chooses to regard the difficulties of his life, not as occasions for depression or despair, though I imagine some tough feelings did arise for him, but he chooses to see them as opportunities to demonstrate a courageous trust in Christ. He prays that the confidence that he demonstrates in the Lord is going to inspire other people. He hopes that it will lead them to live courageously and to share the gospel of God's kingdom wherever they are too. Are you and I facing the challenges of our time, looking for them as opportunities to show our trust in the Lord and to inspire other people by the way we live courageously? Now, Paul goes on and says, that I hope I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. And then Paul makes one of his most famous statements ever. He writes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, I'm not really sure which is the better deal, he's saying. Is it a better deal to, to die and go to be with Christ in eternity? Or is it a better deal to continue to live on here in order to be able to serve Christ's purposes, his gospel purposes in this world? And whatever happens, he says, I just want to serve God best. Let me pause here and just make an observation about the nature of the courage that uh, we meet in the Apostle Paul and which so clearly inspired the early church and which I believe is also needed from the church in our times. As Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt once observed during his presidency, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is not that you're not afraid, but rather it's the assessment that something else is more important than that fear. Something else occupies your attention even more than that understandable fear. For St. Paul, the most important something was seeing Christ preached. He says that to us. Paul literally says, the important thing the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Now, when we hear somebody talking about uh, preaching Christ, it's very natural for us uh, a good deal of the time to think of somebody standing in a pulpit, maybe doing what I'm doing right now as, as we talk together. Maybe you picture somebody out there on a street corner someplace giving a sermon, haranguing the crowd. And it's because those images come to mind, most of us count ourselves out of that enterprise immediately. We think, I couldn't do that. I'm not sure I want to do that. I get that. But it's important to understand that preaching Christ is actually just New Testament shorthand. It is a, a, a uh, collapsed way of describing doing anything that helps the saving grace 
and the transforming truth of God take root in human hearts and communities. Paul's priority was not giving sermons. In fact, most of the New Testament uh, letters of Paul are not really sermonic. That is not his priority. Paul's priority is seeing lives changed for the good by Jesus. Helping that renewal happen was more important to Paul than anything else. It was more important to him than insisting on his privileges as a Roman citizen. It was more important than protecting his reputation as a Jewish Pharisee. It was more important than being liked. It was more than important than preserving his bodily comforts, or as he said to us earlier, even his very life. Paul, I'm sure, felt all kinds of natural human fears, but they were overwhelmed by the consuming passion he had to help other people discover and experience the abounding, life-changing love of Jesus Christ. And so with everything he had, he lived courageously for that purpose. The question I want to invite you to sit with, with me, is what if all of us did that? (laughs) What if helping more people discover and experience the abounding, life-changing love of Christ became our most important thing? And what if we lived toward that with even more courage than we're doing right now? How might you and I actually do that? How might we preach Christ personally and practically and perseveringly? Well, let me just suggest two ways we might do that. First of all, make a decision that before you die, you're going to help at least two people become intentional followers of Christ who aren't right now. In other words, make the decision that you're going to replace yourself before you go. You're gonna make sure there's another Christ follower that takes your place and that you will actually double that up because you're gonna expand the church, expand the kingdom in your lifetime. How would you go about doing that? Well, I wanna suggest you might start praying regularly for the people that you love who aren't following Christ right now. Uh, I wanna suggest that maybe you read my book, Witness Essentials. I wrote it as a primer to help people, help others on the faith journey. Uh, You might uh, get together with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker who's not a Christ follower and just encourage them to read a book like The Purpose Driven Life or The Reason for God. Uh, The first one's by Rick Warren. The second one's by Tim Keller. They're very helpful, provocative books for people just trying to understand what the Christian life is all about and invite them to reflect with you over what that book kicks up for them. Or maybe ask a couple of the people that you know who are not following Jesus in an intentional way, uh, people that you're praying for, ask them to come to dinner or to some kind of hangout with some of your uh, Christian friends, with people that are following Jesus intentionally and help them build relationships with other people for whom the gospel has been so profoundly life-giving. And when the time is right, maybe you might invite them to be part of your small group. Or maybe you might even consider starting a group for skeptics, for people asking, you know, the big questions. I know one of the first groups uh, I've started uh, in multiple points in time has been a group where we studied a book like The Case for Faith or The Case for Christ with people that weren't sure they were believers at all about any of this stuff. And I wouldn't actually ask you to do any of what I'm describing if it were not something that I had not done dozens of times and I'm not that bright and I'm not that smart and I'm not all that capable but I want to tell you when I've taken these steps when I've prayed for people and given them resources and involved them in conversations and invited them into group life I've seen God do something that just changes lives for the good and I know that this is something God calls the church to do please when it comes to helping others into the life of faith, live more courageously than maybe you have been. 
Then second and finally, I want to encourage you to use your voice in the public square in a way that sounds like Jesus and which witnesses to the heart of the kingdom of God more fully. I think we have probably all noticed that our society is inflamed right now. I mean, maybe at record levels uh, for our lifetime. It is just burning up right now with very intense voices and all kinds of passions around race and health and, and politics and many other things. And I don't in any way want to minimize for a second the importance of the underlying issues we're trying to sort out. Not every belief system is equally true or helpful. Not every organization out there uh, is pure in all of its agenda. Not every course of action is actually going to build a better society, even if it's fervently held as a belief system. Not every voice should be accepted without challenge, or at least uh, without analysis and, and, and reflection. And, and that goes even for my own voice. You want to be checking what I am saying against your reading of God's word. But this I do want to say. When you and I are going on social media, or when we're deciding whether to forward that particular email that comes to us, or when we're determining how we're going to interact in conversation with somebody who makes us mad, who, with whom we strenuously disagree, can we still find the courage, and it takes courage, to honor and glorify Christ in the way that we deport ourselves? I read a, uh, an interesting uh, newsletter article this past week by a guy named Kerry Newhoff. Kerry is a, an incredible observer of the Christian church uh, across North America. And, and the title of this uh, particular newsletter article was Nine Things Pastors Aren't Telling Their Churches. And it was a study of, of some realizations that pastors were coming to during this whole COVID experience and the whole social unrest period uh, that creates such discomfort and dislocation for pastors that they're really not even sure how to talk to the church about these things. Uh, one of the, uh, of the confessions that pastors are making privately to each other is that they're more scared about church finances than they're letting on. They're really worried that the, that the base needed to sustain the ministry is eroding and that, and that it could really hurt the ability for the church to continue its witness. A second uh, concern was, uh, or, or confession was, that a lot of pastors have really liked pre-recording their messages during the week and then staying home with their families on weekends. <laughs> I'm do coming to you live this morning uh, from the auditorium of Christ Church, but I will tell you that in an earlier season, we were pre-recording and I just loved being at home, hanging out with Amy, uh, being able to just enjoy the Sabbath in a very special way, the Lord's Day in a relaxed way. Uh, and I'll confess, that was good. Uh, it's maybe not the most important thing, but it was a, a blessing. There is another confession that pastors are making that's even more uncomfortable. And that is that many pastors are discovering an ugly underbelly in the life of their church. Uh, they're discovering, as they, as they have the time to kind of read the social media posts of people or the emails that are flying around, that there is a hard-heartedness, there is a close-mindedness, there is an, a, 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 a raging kind of anger present in the life of the church. There is this tendency to prioritize political and media ways of talking about things over the ways that Jesus calls us to handle ourselves under pressure as his followers. And this ugly underbelly has been coming out uh, in, in scary ways, this incivil way of speaking and, and, and uh, of failing to open ourselves to fresh insight has been coming out in a way that's been discouraging to pastors who've been spending their whole lifetime trying to talk about what uh, the Christian way of talking and, and reflecting and learning is all about. I've been blessed here at Christ Church with remarkable church members. Uh, I, I'm so impressed by all of you in, in vast ways. Uh, but I just would go on to say that, that if being white or being black or being blue, if, if, 
if being progressive or libertarian or conservative, if being clever or snarky or virtue signaling feels more significant, more important to us than speaking in a way that reflects the heart of Christ and imitates the way he responded even to those who reviled him, who did him wrong. If that is the case, that these things, doing what everybody else out there is doing, is more important to us than we need to pull back, I think we need to catch our breath. I think we need to think further, humble ourselves, love mercy, act justly. I think this is our calling as the church. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 1 and verse 27. Whatever happens, whatever pressure you're under, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't want to pretend that that is easy. Let's not deceive ourselves. It takes courage to be the church. It takes courage to live in such a way that we draw people into the life of Christ and display the beauty of the kingdom of God but I do not know a calling that is more beautiful and more important in this particular time than being that church. Alexis de Tocqueville was right. America will only be as great as the quality and the witness of her church. So let's be that church. Let's pursue an even better life together. Would you please pray with me? Oh Lord our God, on this holiday weekend we come before you with fresh passion and desire to see you have your way with all of us. Make your church, we pray in this country, the home of the brave in the best sense of that term. Grow in us the courage to keep praying, to keep learning, to keep engaging, and to keep acting in a manner that embodies the teaching and the practice of Jesus above all else. By the way we dare to live and to love, inspire others, God, to leave behind the idolatries and the ideologies that are dividing and destroying us and join us, Lord, in pursuing your way. Revive America, Lord, by reviving us. Mend our every flaw. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's disciples said, amen. Days may be darkest, but your light is greater. You light our way, God, you light our way. When evil is rising, you're rising higher with power to save, with power to save.
It has been such a joy and honor to have you in the circle with us this morning as we have been Christ Church at worship. I hope you'll come on back next week as we continue our Life Together series and explore the, one of the most amazing passages ever written, Philippians chapter 2. I encourage you to read it during this week to come. And now, beloved, go forth in hope and be of good courage and hold fast to that which is good. Render to no one evil for evil, but comfort the afflicted and bind up the brokenhearted, honoring all persons. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit be with you all through this day and until we meet again and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>